a roundup of the main business news from China and elsewhere. This is Global Business. Hello and welcome to this edition of Global Business on CGTN. I'm Guanxing in Beijing. Coming up on the program. Manufacturing momentum, a private survey reveals surge in China's factory activity as orders rise in November. Farm Power, the first China international supply chain expo, is underway in Beijing. Today, we zoom in on the supply chain in agriculture. Welcome move, China has decided to implement a unilateral visa-free policy for ordinary passport holders from six countries, effective today. We start with some fresh economic data from China. The country's crucial manufacturing sector witnessed a rebound in November following a temporary contraction in October. According to a recent private survey, the Taishin Purchasing Managers Index for Manufacturing surged to 50.7 from 49.5 in October, surpassing the 50-point threshold that separates growth from contraction. The expansion was helped by a sustained increase in overall new orders, leading to increased production and enhanced purchasing activities. Business optimism for the 12-month outlook rose to its highest level since July, as firms remain hopeful of further improvement next year. China has stressed the importance of enhancing arable land protection and saline soil utilization in a 23rd issue of the Chouchi Journal, a flagship magazine of the CPC Central Committee. It also highlighted the need to safeguard arable land to enhance soil quality. Additionally, farmers and local governments must take steps to enhance the system and technology for cultivating grains while also developing various non-traditional arable land resources to ensure food safety. And now for more discussions on the modernization of agriculture and latest academic data, we're joined by Shi Fanqi, an assistant professor at the School of Economics of Peking University. Thank you for joining us, Professor Shi. So how do you evaluate the current state of the manufacturing industry PMI as reported by Caixin, and what are the potential implications for the overall economic outlook? Thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, so for the analysis, uh, let's first compare the data with the data uh, earlier re released by the National Bureau of Statistics for the official data. So basically, the, we see that the Caixin PMI actually rose a little bit to 50.7, whereas uh, the National Bureau of Statistics reported a decrease, a slight decrease to 49.4. So basically, we are quite interested in why there is such a gap. And then as I dig a little bit into the data, I noticed uh, that basically the Caixin, the sample is quite different from, the, from those of the National Bureau of Statistics. The sample of the PMI is mostly the small and mini enterprises uh, on the overseas, on the east overseas, on the east coast, whereas uh, the National Bureau of Statistics is more of a national representative. So basically, the outlook basically says uh, that is probably finally we are seeing some growth from overseas orders and also domestic uh, consumption orders, but that uh, the overall investment for the whole economy is still pretty much not promising, at least not in the short run. So basically for the for moving forward, uh, I see that uh, there are basically basically both positive side and the negative side. So the positive side is that probably we'll finally some see some growth from overseas orders, whereas on the negative side, basically there is also the complication of the current influenza and also the still the very weak investment for uh, moving forward. 
Thank you for your com comprehensive analysis. And let's talk about agriculture. Could you share examples of, of common applications of 5G big data and other technologies in agriculture production, which is playing an increasingly important role? Additionally, what are the emerging trends in smart agriculture? Okay, so thank you for, for that. Basically, I have first, I have to admit that I'm not expert in that field, but basically I did a, bit, did a little bit of research and I noticed that there are basically uh, three examples. The first is the use of smart farming sensors, which can uh, help monitor the environment in, and also the field, uh, the field situation. And the second is the use of machine learning, for example, which can help to predict uh, future changes, both in the environment and the soil. So the first one is more, more about the current state and the, the machine learning is more about the future production. And the third one is the use of drones and satellites of cameras, which can uh, save people from traveling to remote areas in the field. So those are the three applications. So I see for the trend, I see more and more integration of the use of these technologies. For example, uh, the emergence of big data uh, can, sorry, the emergence of, of machine learning technologies can help utilize, better utilize the uh, big data. And also there's the new term called the IoT or the Internet of Things, which can help uh, integrate the several technologies. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us your insights. That was Professor Shi Fanqi, an assistant professor at the School of Economics of Peking University. It's day four of the first China International Supply Chain Expo. The event is being held in Beijing with the theme Connecting the World for a Shared Future. The five-day event is not only the first of its kind on a national level, but also marks China's unwavering commitment to ensuring the stability and efficiency of global industrial and supply chains. And for more on the expo, my colleague Michael Wan is standing by at the China International Exhibition Center. Hey there, Guanxin, and welcome everyone on site to the China International Supply Chain Expo. Look from clean energy to health, from digital technology to smart vehicles and green agriculture, this expo features five major supply chain themes, but also highlights supply chain services as well. And that is where we turn our attention to today. Our Juju is at the supply chain service exhibition area of the event, and our Miro Lu joins us live from Singapore. So welcome to you both. Juju, let me begin with you. Uh, what stands out to you in the supply chain services area of the expo? Thank you, Michael. We are now here right at the uh, exhibition services exhibition area. It covers about 8,000 square meters and over 60 companies are participating here, showcasing their products and services here. Just like this Tellurian shows, this sector it really emphasizes international cooperation. Well, we are now here at the exhibition zone of China's Shandong port. It also plays a very crucial role in boosting international supply chain services cooperation. You can see they are showcasing many of their containers and cargoes here. The total cargo throughput of Shandong port ranked first globally last year. It also ranked first in China in the first eight months of this year. Um, there are, are many uh, advanced technologies being showcased here. You can see that within this very large area, they don't need any human labors. It's all automatic and it's all unmanned operation. Well, those exhibitors representatives here told me that their businesses have covered nearly 180 countries, including many Belt and Road participating countries, really largely connected international supply chain services cooperation. And I've also talked to many other industry leaders here, such as uh, Song Hailiang, chairman of China Engineer, uh, Energy Engineering Group, and also Jiang Tao, vice chairman of the uh, uh, iFly Tech, one of China's uh, tech giants. 
they all told me that uh, they are called for uh, more international cooperation on uh, supply chain uh, services uh, in this sector. Well, take a listen. In October, the U.S. implemented additional restrictions on China's computing power products. As a result, we collaborated with China's leading tech company, Huawei, to introduce a new computing platform that's entirely reliant on domestically produced computing power. During the operational phase of code production, we successfully achieved a 30 to 40 percent efficiency improvement with ample potential for further enhancements in the future. Our aspiration is for global collaboration in technology advancement to create benefits for all nations. As the supply chain continues to globalize, the interdependence of services across different countries has become increasingly apparent. We advocate for a deeper international integration of supply chain services. Presently, we are actively advancing China's new energy integrated technologies, encompassing new materials, technologies, and equipment, not only in Central Asia, Africa, and Eastern Europe, but also integrating them into diverse application scenarios worldwide. Our goal is to collaborate in establishing secure and stable supply chains on a global scale. Uh, Miro, so we know that Singapore has the fifth largest port in the world. Talk to us more about Singapore's role in global supply chains. Well, Michael, the short answer is Singapore plays an essential role in the global supply chain. Now, because of its strategic location, Singapore has been a significant trading post for at least two centuries. A few years ago, in fact, two shipwrecks were found near Singapore waters bearing Yuan Dynasty uh, Qinghua ceramics. The artifacts were displayed in the museums for an extended period of time to educate the public about the island nation's rich maritime heritage. The fact is the island where modern-day Singapore stands has been serving as the gateway to Asia for centuries. Now, you mentioned the port of Singapore. In fact, it was the busiest port in the world until 2010, when it was surpassed by the port of Shanghai. It is still, however, the world's busiest transshipment port as a transiting hub. A fifth of the world's shipping containers and half of the world's annual supply of crude oil passed through Singapore. The port of Singapore is also the world's largest bunkering port. The majority of ships that pass between the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean go through the Singapore Strait. Singapore is one of the world's most connected countries, I think it's fair to say, with 600 ports in 123 countries are connected to Singapore by 200 shipping lanes. Changi Airport, which has constantly ranked as world's best airport, has an annual cargo handling capacity of 3 million tons. Now, apart from these world-class infrastructure, Singapore is first class when it comes to global connectivity and in software as well. The World Bank constantly ranks Singapore as the most efficient country for customs clearance. Singapore Customs process 90% of electronics permit applications within 10 minutes and clears 90% of physical cargo within just 8 minutes. On the policy level, Singapore has a wider network of more than 27 free trade agreements globally. The city-state is part of and oftentimes the founding members of all the major global trade pacts like CPTPP, RCEP, you name it. 
Singapore is the advocate, in fact, uh, as the uh, biggest advocate, you can say, for globalization. As its leaders has reiterated in many occasions, that Singapore has enormously benefited from globalization, and it has no choice but to continue to do business with the world. So it is really deeply plugged in to the global supply chain, Michael. Indeed it is. Okay, Miro, many thanks for that report. Our Miro Lu for us in Singapore and our Juju live for us there at the service area of the Supply Chain Expo. And China and Brazil have a robust agriculture trade. This year, a fresh trade channel has been established between the two nations, paving the way for an anticipated surge in the import of Brazilian corn into China. Now, at the same time, the investments of Chinese companies in Brazil's sustainable initiatives when it comes to soy are also considered pivotal. CGTN's Wang Tianyu and Paulo Cabral has more. In early January this year, a cargo ship loaded 68,000 tons of corn from Brazil arrived at the port in Dongguan, a city in South China's Guangdong province. The corn, which could fill 23 trains, marks the first batch of Brazilian corn imported into China. China is Brazil's biggest trading partner, with trade reaching over $150 billion last year. Both countries enjoy economic cooperation in many fields, and one that is flourishing is agriculture. China and Brazil reached an agreement on corn imports in 2022. The country's biggest food trader, China Oil and Foodstuffs Corporation, is the one that made the deal happen from paper to reality. We always expected to open a core import channel from Brazil. It helps us to balance the regional and seasonal variations in South America, North America, and Black Sea, and offset the risks in supply chains. For Chinese food production companies, the import of Brazilian corn can help them grow. The import of Brazilian corn provides us diversified choices, as the corn from Brazil is a source of high-quality raw materials, and the import reduces our purchasing costs. Corn is now Brazil's second-largest crop after soybeans. The country is the world's third-largest corn producer and the second-largest corn exporter. With these new trade channels being created, Brazil's corn export to China is expected to jump. Bioproducts like this natural pest control this small farmer is applying to his beans are fundamental to organic agriculture. And Brazilian small and family farmers associated with the landless workers movement are eager to take advantage of a recently established partnership to leverage China's expertise in organic and small-scale agriculture to enhance their production. China has an abundance of experience in family farming, including the production of machinery and equipment tailored for small farms, as well as in sciences and technologies that have already led to the production of bio-inputs there, including biofertilizers. Engaging with China is a promising idea. It brings knowledge and technology to the farmer, freeing us from multinationals that take all our profits. On the Chinese side, this is headed by China Agricultural University, which established connections with the landless workers' movement and also with Brazilian universities. This exchange of experience is vital because the Chinese university and government are light years ahead in the organic production process in the country, supporting small producers. 
At the Landless Workers Pirituba settlement, part of the strategy involves Chinese assistance to expand their biofactory to produce greater amounts of organic pesticides and fertilizers. Through this partnership, we can engage the entire world, right? The benefits won't be just for us, but for everyone. The environmental issue, the reduction of pesticides in human food, allows everyone to get involved. Another crucial aspect of the partnership is providing machinery suited for family agriculture, such as these tractors that are expected to be delivered next year and perhaps in the future be manufactured here. In Brazil, we have machines designed for agribusiness, but we need machines that address our specific problems with weeding and harvesting, so that organic and agroecological production isn't arduous. Family agriculture accounts for a significant portion of Brazil's food production. Some estimates suggest up to 70%, and its development can positively impact the economy, the environment and the workers involved. Paulo Cabral, CGTN, Itabera, Brazil. And joining me in the studio now is Jan van der Port, who is the port representative of the port of Antwerp, Bruges, and an economic diplomatic advisor to the Belgian embassy here in Beijing. Jan, welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Jan, the port of Antwerp, Bruges, this is the second largest port in Europe. What is your port doing to ensure the resilience of global supply chains, as well as the resilience of the European economy, which, of course, has a very large trading relationship with China? Indeed. Well, resilience is, I should say, part of the fabric of, uh, of the port. And um, in, when we talk about resilience, we think about infrastructure, we think about people, and we think about partnerships. Mm. It's something we've been investing in for, for many years. Uh, when you look at, uh, at infrastructure, for example, you need to know that Antwerp is, um, well, in a, in a ratio of 500 kilometers around the port, you will cover already 60% of the European consumer markets. Wow. And uh, one of our strong points is actually the connectivity that we have. Connectivity meaning road, rail, and in our case also inland waterways. That's infrastructure. Yeah. Mm. And we've been heavily investing in optimizing that for, uh, for many years. Uh, the proof is in the pudding. Uh, when we had, went through the, uh, the pandemic, like everybody else, well, the port kept running. 100% operational throughout the, uh, the, whole, uh, the whole period. Yeah. And that is simply a combination of infrastructure, people, and again, as I mentioned, the right partnerships. Yeah. And we see ourselves as a port authority also as a, as a community builder. So hence, getting these corporations going, and that makes you resilient. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I want to ask you about uh, China's connection with the port mm -hmm. of Antwerp, Bruges. You were telling me earlier that a lot of Chinese exports of automobiles actually land at your port. Uh, how connected is China with the port of Antwerp, Bruges? Well, the, uh, the connection with, uh, uh, with China is, um, yeah, is, 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 is famous. We have, like I already mentioned, each and every shipping company that plies a service to Europe yeah. will call at Port of Antwerp. The volumes are there, and since uh, I mentioned we are also a chemical part, so we also generate cargo in, uh, in the port itself. Mm. When it comes to, uh, to automotive, um, you know, uh, Antwerp Bruges are actually two ports that were merged. And the platform Bruges, Zeebrugge is the, uh, the Flemish name, yeah. uh, is actually the uh, biggest Roro port of Europe. Well, not actually only of Europe, actually of the world. Uh, um, we see about 3.5 million cars per year 
going through that uh, that platform. Yeah. And yeah, it's not a not a it doesn't come as a surprise to you, of course, that there's an, a nice chunk uh, Chinese com uh, cars coming as well uh, towards us. Yeah. And we are uh, we are ready for it. Mm. Final question for you, Jan. Uh, we live in, I would say, times of economic uncertainty. Uh, in the world that we live in today, how can we foster a stronger supply chain cooperation? Well, um, the disruptions that that that, uh, that we see today they, they result in, in a fluctuating uh, demand and, and again supply chain disruptions. Uh, been there, done uh, done that. Um, what is our answer to that? Our answer is very simple. You try to enhance uh, cooperation as much as possible. Mm. Again, what I mentioned earlier, the uh, uh, the partnerships. Uh, another uh, solution is uh, focusing on what I would call responsive logistics. In a changing environment, you need to be able to, to be very uh, reactive. Also, sharing of information, sharing of, uh, of data. If you yeah. share information, you will also allow your partners to make uh, much better forecasts. And much better forecast means that you're better prepared to, uh, to handle that. And, of course, uh, we're, we're definitely a, a, an, an advocate for, for open trade. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, we're going to leave it there. Jan, thank you so much for your insights. Jan van der Poort, who is the port representative at I'm the honest. port of Antwerp Bruges. Thank you so much. Thank you. Right, so the official data shows that about 26% of the over 500 companies at the Supply Chain Expo are from abroad. Now, the China Council for the Promotion of International Trade is reporting that many participants are saying the event went above their expectations and that they would continue to attend the expo next year. And with that, we're going to wrap up this segment on site here at the China International Supply Chain Expo. Stay tuned, of course, to CGTN as we continue our coverage of the event. But for now, Guanxin, it is back to you. Today marks the commencement of China's provision of unilateral visa-free entry for a duration of up to 15 days to ordinary passport holders from France, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, Spain, and Malaysia. Our reporter Zhang Shixuan spoke to two foreign invested companies in China to explore the new business opportunities arising from this new policy. Citizens of the five European countries in Malaysia will now be able to enter China without a visa for business, tourism, family visits, and transit purposes. The trial policy will be in effect for one year, until November 30, 2024. This has promising prospects for this German headquartered consulting firm. Before, you know, if you want to come to China, no matter you're in Germany or France, you first have to get an invitation letter, and then you have to fill the online forms, schedule time, then you have to spend a half day, go to the consulate for a face-to-face -face interview. So that takes a lot of effort. Now it's so convenient, you can just make your travel decision anytime then buy your ticket, then come to China. Especially for our colleagues in, in, in other countries, it's very important for them to have a face-to-face -face meeting, not only with our colleagues in China, but also to visit the client in China as well. So they can have the first-hand information and also have a, a more direct feelings about how China economy is improving after pandemic. For Roland Berger, China market is always one of the most important countries around the globe. And sometimes we even have our global training and also global seminar uh, held in Shanghai and Beijing. So global colleagues come to, come to here as well to see, to see the first-hand information about the new situation in China. Jiang also expressed hopes about the resumption of more cross-border flights, which would lower traveling costs. This German industrial company in Shanghai's Lingang special area is also optimistic about the new policy. 
I have talked with some of my uh, German colleagues. They are also uh, excited, and uh, they also believe this is a very good um, change, a very good policy that will be uh, very good for a better communication between headquarters and their branch companies in China. Even though we are also developing the local expertise for all the know-hows for our product and for our applications. But in our headquarters, we do have more experts, they have uh, more experience. So the support from headquarters is very important for our success in the uh, China market. So we, we do need more and more efficient communication from our headquarters to have more and stronger support to grow our business in China. This is China's latest effort to improve its visa policies. Earlier last month, it expanded its visa-free transit policy to 54 countries to include Norwegian passport holders. Zhang Shuxuan, ICS for CGTN, Shanghai. We now have more discussions on China's latest tourism policies and their impact. We're joined by Sarah Wan, Original Director Asia of the World Travel and Tourism Council. Thank you for joining us, Sarah. So what past effects do you foresee from China's decision to broaden its unilateral visa-free country list in terms of fostering innovation and development in inbound tourism products and services? Thank you for having me. Um, visa policies are among the most important governmental policies influencing international travel and tourism. So the visa-free expansion acts as a global welcome easing travel for international visitors and enhancing global connectivities. WTTC welcomed this announcement. We believe the opening of such a titan will no doubt give a much-needed boost to the country's economy and the travel and tourism sector. Firstly, it will greatly help boost the travel and tourism companies' confidence on further investing on innovation of inbound products and services. Secondly, adapting services to suit the uh, preference of international travelers is crucial for success. We have seen some challenges uh, facing by international travelers. So expansion of the visa-free countries um, expected to speed up the process of addressing these challenges, such as to provide uh, multiple ways of payment if without a smart wallet, um, provide sufficient uh, signs and guidance uh, in English in public uh, transportation infrastructures and tourism attractions. And uh, specifically, there would be a need uh, to have more tour guides with language capacity, not only in English, but also uh, in Germany, Spanish, French, etc., to provide a better service to tourism and visa-free countries. Um, lastly, we think uh, international travel and tourism is a force for cultural exchange and china has such a great uh, cultural heritage and tradition and also natural beauty that offers uh, abundant uh, tourism resources these there are opportunities for travel and tourism company um, to make best use of these resources and turn into products and services can uh, uh, can enhance the overall travel experience Thank you so much for sharing with us. And that was Sarah Wan, Regional Director Asia of the World Travel and Tourism Council. And that will do it for this edition of Global Business. I'm Guan Xing in Beijing. Thanks for watching. See you next time.